So what's the deal with Trump's view on China and trade? Is he confused about it all? Or is this trade war a stroke of genius from Donny Boy himself? Everything you need to know about the US-China trade war coming right up. Ladies and gents, welcome to another episode of Hidden Perspective. This is Rob Greco. Okay, this is the first episode that I'm recording for 2020, so I hope you had a lovely Christmas and New Year's break and you start off the roaring 20s with a bang. So I want you to take a look at the closest object near you and have a guess. Where was it made? Odds are, if I were a betting man, I'd definitely say it's a country other than the one that you're living in, and odds are that it's going to be China, right? For example, my phone. Let's say China. My computer. China. Pretty much everything in my apartment. China. 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 But how did this all happen? Well, first, we need to go back. So humans have always traded in some form throughout history. Typically, it's through bartering. And it wasn't until the rise of the nation-state at the close of the Middle European Ages that we really began to say, hey, what works in terms of trade arrangements? So we came up with this idea called mercantilism in the 16th and 17th century, and it was all about acquiring that sweet, sweet gold. It was really important for national policy that you would acquire gold. Uh, That was seen as the best way to acquire wealth. But what that also meant is that you could only prosper at the expense of another nation. So, for example, if country A sells to country B, country A is benefiting from that situation, but country B is losing in that situation. So, as a result of that, countries tried to stimulate exports and restrict imports. But then came that monumental year of 1776. No, it wasn't the year that the US was founded. Come on, people, there's more to life than America. No, it was a year that arguably one of the most influential books in human history was published. I know it was a big call, but I'll stand by it. It was a year that Adam Smith published The Wealth of Nations. Now, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that this book changed the course of human history. Most famously, it gave us the idea of the invisible hand, which is the seemingly counterintuitive idea that pursuing your self-interest is also in the interest of society as a whole. The famous quote is, it is not from the benevolence of the butcher the baker or the brewer that we can expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own self-interest. But more importantly, for current purposes, it made the compelling case for free trade, which follows from the simple idea that in every country, it always is and must be the interest of the great body of the people to buy whatever they want of those who sell it cheapest. And so in order to buy goods for the cheapest price, 
naturally, it makes sense to buy goods from countries that can produce those goods more cheaply, right? Adam Smith also took the idea of specialization and applied it to the country level. So in the same way that it doesn't make sense for a tailor to be making their own shoes, it also doesn't make sense for a country to be making goods that it can buy more cheaply from other countries. And so note in this respect, it doesn't matter to Adam Smith if you need to import goods from other countries. Now, this is in sharp contrast to the mercantilist view of trade, which, as I mentioned just before, wants to restrict imports. Adam Smith also points to other benefits of trade, the first one being that you can sell surplus produce to countries abroad, and the second being that free trade improves your productivity because it exposes you to foreign competition. And so that's Adam Smith, the founding father of economics in a nutshell. I hope I've given you an accurate retelling of Adam Smith. Otherwise, I failed all of my high school economics teachers as well as all of my university economics professors. Now, shortly after this, David Ricardo refines these ideas into the principle of comparative advantage, which is basically the idea that you should specialize in areas in which you have a comparative advantage, being the areas with the lowest possible opportunity cost. What does all that economic mumbo-jumbo mean? Well, it means that you should specialize in making things that you do really well, relative to what else you could be doing with your time and money relative to your trading partners. And so by engaging in trade with your trading partners, both you and them can acquire more goods and services than you would be able to otherwise. And with this, free trade is in, mercantilism is out, economists pretty much unanimously get behind the idea of free trade. This also leads England to enjoy a largely unrestricted run of free trade up until World War I. But despite England's affinity for free trade, it isn't accepted universally. In particular, there were high surges of protectionism in the first half of the 20th century. Protectionism is just the idea of erecting trade barriers such as tariffs and import quotas to protect domestic companies and workers. But nevertheless, free trade has clearly become the norm in recent history with economists citing the level of trade openness that we have now as the highest it's ever been in human history. This is largely thanks to particularly free trade-friendly leaders at the end of the 20th century, leaders such as President Reagan in the States, Margaret Thatcher in the UK, the Hawke-Keating duo in Australia, in addition to many other leaders around the world. Then we started forming regional trading blocks, such as the formalization of the European Union in 1992. Then there was agreement on NAFTA in 1993. Uh, in the year 1995, the World Trade Organization, or the WTO, gets established in order to preserve and advance economic globalization to prevent the protectionist horrors of the 1930s. Even China joins the WTO. In 2001, and by and large, this globalizing free trade system seems to be working. We have global poverty, which is falling. China has the greatest economic transformation in human history, lifting more than 500 million people out of abject poverty. Other countries like Vietnam, other countries throughout Southeast Asia, and even Africa report their biggest gains in history. 
And Western countries also seem to benefit by getting access to cheap shit and also by specializing into high-skilled industries that developing countries can't compete with. And so that was the story how virtually everything you own came to be produced in another country. Now, in case you haven't ever stopped to appreciate the miracle of free trade, I want to tell you a story. Well, it's not my story, but it's a story based on the famous essay by Leonard Reed called I Pencil. Now, just like you nor I are able to trace back our family trees very far, this pencil is unable to tell you where it came from and how it got made. For starters, the pencil's made out of wood, lacquer, the labeling, the metal band, an eraser, and the graphite lead, right? But just because you know exactly what makes up a pencil, does it mean you necessarily know how to make it? Let's start off with the wood. So we need loggers to cut down trees, and those loggers, in turn, will need chainsaws and ropes and other equipment in order to cut down those trees. So therefore, they rely on people to be making the chainsaws and the ropes and distributing them across the global supply chain. Now, once we cut down the trees, we need to send this to a mill. But now we just have the wood for the pencil. What about the process that's involved for the lacquer, the labeling, the eraser, the metal band and the graphite lead? Think about the countless number of people and companies that are involved in producing all of those elements for the pencil. So what's the point of all of this? Well, there are two points. The first one being, despite how seemingly simple and the fact that a pencil is such an everyday object that we're all familiar with, there isn't a single person in the world who knows how to make a pencil from start to finish. But at the same time, the pencil-making process can't do without every individual's contribution along the way. And the second point is, despite how complicated the process is, as we've now come to realize, there isn't a mastermind forcibly directing the countless actions that are required. Instead, it's the miracle of the free trade system or the invisible hand at work. But there's a problem. If there weren't a problem, there'd be no need for this podcast. And what good is that? The problem with global trade, or more precisely, the problem with how the gains of global trade have been distributed, is the elephant. Yep, that's right, an elephant. This absolutely blew me away when I first saw it. I was reading Stephen Pinker's book, Enlightenment Now. As soon as I saw this graph, it completely smacked me in between the eyes. Basically, there was a report released from the WTO in 2012, I think it was, that charted the gains in real income from the year 1988 to the year 2008, basically the first 20 years of globalization. And what we find is if we line up the world's poorest on the left-hand side to the world's richest on the right-hand side, the chart of the income gains looks like an elephant outline. We have the elephant's backside on the left-hand side. Then as you move to the right, you reach the elephant's torso. And then after this, you approach the elephant's head and then its trunk. And then imagine at the very end on the right-hand side, the elephant's trunk has flicked up. Now, what does all of this mean? Well, it means that 
ever since we embarked on globalization, roughly in the 1980s, that the world's poorest, I think people in Africa and countries throughout Asia, have had income gains of anywhere between 60 to 70%. And then as you approach the elephant's torso, this is the Chinese middle class with income gains of 90%. Then as you approach the elephant's trunk at the very bottom, these guys haven't done so well. They only have income gains of 20 to 30%. And this group is uh, workers within the, the US, uh, the working class within Europe and countries of that type of economic status and then at the very end with the elephant's upward flicking trunk that's the world's one percent now the reason why i'm fascinated by this graph along with so many other people is because it explains so much in politics these days for example it explains the rise in populist and socialist interest in the west it explains why the working class feels disgruntled with globalization the perception that other countries have been benefiting to a larger extent than they have ever since we started truly engaging in free trade. And as the elephant graph shows, it's absolutely spot on. And the person to sense and seize upon this anxiety better than anybody else was the instigator of the trade war himself, Donald Trump. Because we can't continue to allow China to rape our country, and that's what they're doing. It's the greatest theft in the history of the world. We've lost, and I say this all the time, because it's hard to believe, 70,000 factories. I thought it was a typo. I thought it was 700 or 7,000. It's 70,000 factories since China entered the World Trade Organization. Another bill and Hillary backed disaster. If you look at what countries like China are doing to this country, they are eating our lunch. We're building China. We are really building China because everything we make is made in China or other countries. It's not made here. We don't make things anymore. We don't make, as an example, I ordered thousands of windows the other week, a couple of weeks ago. They're made in China. I said, does anybody make windows like in this country, in North Carolina, in Alabama? in Oregon, in places that used to make windows. They don't make them anymore. Trump decided that since the 1990s, too many American factory workers have lost their jobs, and too many of these jobs have gone to China, which has raped the US on trade. According to Trump, American workers got ripped off by NAFTA, ripped off by China joining the WTO in 2001. How do we know this? Well, to Trump, the U.S. has a trade deficit of $500 billion, which is the U.S. buys $500 billion more in goods than China buys from the U.S. So clearly, by Trump's logic, something is wrong. Note that if you've been listening closely, this is just a variation of the mercantilist view of trade that Adam Smith debunked. But in any case, Trump's going to fix this. How? Well, he's going to impose tariffs, which are a tax on imports, to make foreign imports more expensive. This, in turn, will incentivize U.S. consumers to buy American-made products, which, in turn, will save U.S. manufacturing. So off Trump went. In early 2018, he imposed tariffs on solar panels, washing imports, steel and aluminium, or aluminum, as some crazy people in North America like to pronounce, only excluding a few countries, Australia being one of them. Thanks, Donny Boy. Shortly after, China retaliates with 
tariffs on 128 products. And then this leads to some trade negotiations between China and the US, with the US asking China to reduce the trade deficit to 200 billion US dollars. China says, no thanks, buddy, we're good. And this is where things really start to ramp up. In July 2018, the US and China begin their tit-for-tat trade war, which is probably what you've been hearing a lot of lately. The US starts by imposing tariffs on $34 billion worth of Chinese goods. China retaliates to an equal amount. Then President Trump decides that this amount isn't large enough, so like in round numbers, Trump raises that amount from $34 billion to $50 billion US dollars. Again, China retaliates. And then this goes on for about a year and a half with a few meetups along the way up until December 2019 when a phase one trade deal is announced. In this phase one deal, the US agreed to reduce tariffs from 15 to 7.5% while leaving tariffs in place on remaining goods, saying that further reductions will be linked to progress in future negotiations. As for the Chinese, they agreed to increase their purchase of US goods by $200 billion over two years, including $40 to $50 billion in US agricultural products, and they also agreed to implementing safeguards regarding intellectual property. But it's clear that this is just the start of the process. 83% of costs from the trade dispute are still in effect. And it's important to stress that the trade war is already having an effect on both economies. In the US, goods are becoming more expensive for US importers and some parts of the US consumer market, although it's believed that retailers have been delaying price increases to 2020. According to Bloomberg Economics, uh, the US economy lost $134 billion in GDP in the year 2019. As for the Chinese, many firms have started to relocate their factories out of China, most of those going to Southeast Asia. As for Trump's beloved trade deficit with China, it actually shrunk by 0.7% but not for the right reasons. So the biggest contributor to that reduction was a boom in shale oil exports. But if you strip out shale oil, the deficit for the economy, including the manufacturing sector, actually increased. And another factor was a reduction in imports, indicating weakening US consumer demand. All right, that's the nitty-gritty, the background to trade and some of the details of the trade war itself. So you got through the tedious part. But now you might be wondering, okay, is Trump right to be imposing tariffs on China? I mean, are tariffs a good thing or a bad thing? Well, let's start with the view that tariffs are harmful. So if you pay attention to economic debates, you would know that economists rarely agree on much. But one thing that they're pretty much unanimous on is the case in favor of free trade. Let's take a listen to what some of the economists have to say. You know, I want to tell you the best argument I've ever heard for free trade. And this comes from Henry George. He wrote once, it's a very interesting thing, in time of war, we blockade our enemies in order to prevent them from getting goods from us. In time of peace, we do to ourselves by tariffs what we do to our enemy in time of war. (laughs) Free trade would unquestionably have a positive effect on the American economy. If we were unilaterally 
with no agreements, simply to abolish all our duties, quotas, and everything, you would have a period of great prosperity. Let's say you own $50,000 worth of household and personal goods. You have furniture like a sofa and a desk. You have appliances like a washer and a dryer, a coffee maker. Uh, You have an automobile in your garage. You have clothing in your closet. You have pharmaceuticals in your medicine chest. Would you be enriched if each year the government hired thugs to destroy $2,500 worth of these possessions? They break into your house and destroy them. Of course not. While a few producers might benefit, say the furniture maker who sells you a sofa after the thugs destroyed your older one, clearly you and your family are made poorer by this policy that is explicitly designed to increase the amount of scarcity that you must endure. A policy of protective tariffs differs in no economically relevant ways from a policy of routinely deploying thugs to break into people's house to destroy household possessions. So to flesh out this point, trade is a win-win, or in the fancy parlance, a positive-sum game, not a zero-sum game, as Trump likes to think. The second point to underscore is that although some jobs will be lost due to foreign competition, this will be compensated by cheaper goods and a larger variety of goods, but also by new jobs that will be created as the economy adjusts and continues to specialize in areas in which it has a comparative advantage. And it's important to point out that the case for free trade is a unilateral one. As the economist Paul Krugman writes, If economists ruled the world, there would be no need for a world trade organization. The economist's case for free trade is essentially a unilateral one. A country serves its own interests by pursuing free trade regardless of what other countries may do. So that's the first point, the general case to be made in favor of free trade. The second point is that you shouldn't be concerned with trade deficits. Let's take a listen to what The economists have to say on this point. You know, the reason that we have trade deficits, uh, the reason we have trade deficits in manufacturing is two things. One is we're very good at selling services, so those service exports, uh, you know, Balance of payments always balances. All, everything always adds up one way or another. If you're going to be successful at selling services, then you're going to be less successful at selling manufactured goods. And if you're going to be successful at selling IOUs, if lots of people are going to bring money to invest in the U.S., that's going to mean a stronger dollar, which is going to mean less competitive manufacturing. So the only, really, the only real way to have a lot more manufacturing through trade is to somehow convince people not to invest in America and not to buy our services. The idea that we have to have a budget surplus, surplus that that's better than a, than a deficit, is completely uh, contrary to what all the evidence shows. During the Great Depression of the 1930s, we had uh, trade surpluses. It didn't do us a bit of good. During the prosperity of the 1990s, we had uh, def- uh, trade deficits that didn't, didn't hurt the, the, pros- the prosperity at all. Uh, the, 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 this, is, this is a number that, that uh, uh, there's, there's less to it than meets the eye. And the crazy thing is, Trump should know this. As Steve Moore, one of Trump's advisors, notes in his book, Trumponomics, he and other advisors have constantly been telling Trump not to take the trade deficit seriously. And this is for a few reasons. First off, the $500 billion trade deficit with China is a merchandise trade deficit, which means it relates to goods and not services in things like accounting, IT, consulting, which the US dominates over China. The second reason is the trade deficit is pretty much dollar for dollar completely offset by a capital account surplus. Basically, the capital account is 
we count the tracks, the buying and selling of assets like real estate and bonds. Think of it like this. There are cargo ships going from China to America and it's full of things like iPhones, toys and clothing. But at the same time, there are cargo ships going from the States to China and those ships are full of IOUs. So this idea that a trade deficit is inherently wrong doesn't account for the fact that it's completely offset by a surplus on your capital account. And the third reason is that in 2018, Moore and other Trump advisors presented Trump with a report showing a strong correlation between trade deficits and periods of strong economic growth and low unemployment. In fact, at the beginning of the Great Recession, the US had a trade surplus. It didn't do them any good whatsoever. So that's the point on trade deficits. The next point is that free trade is an extremely powerful poverty reduction tool. Again, as Steve Moore writes in his book, Trumponomics, expansion of international trade from 1980 to 2005 launched the greatest period of poverty reduction in world history, with a billion people moving out of abject poverty. Trade has done more to reduce human deprivation, hunger, and inequality than all the trillions of dollars of charitable and foreign aid ever donated to poor nations. Steve Moore also makes the point that nations with free trade policies that are connected to the global economy have per capita incomes that are about six times larger than nations closed off from the world trading system. So those three points that one, trade is a win-win, two, trade deficits aren't a thing that should be taken seriously, and three, that free trade is a powerful poverty reduction tool, basically sum up the economic case in favor of free trade. But there are also some political reasons. The first of those is that trade wars are extremely difficult to unwind once they've begun. Here's Thomas Sowell. I've been reading a lot of the European press, the English versions that I get, and, and a lot of them have been saying, almost to a publication, the president is unleashing something he might regret. You seem to agree. You, you, can't, you, you can't control it. Yeah. You start it and you can't stop it. And uh, th- that, that's, that's the bad part. If this is something he could uh, put in and he, after a month or two he sees it's not working, he'd stop it. No, by that time, it's acquired a life of its own. Other countries will already be taking their retaliatory measures. And the net result is that all the countries put together are going to lose because they'll cut down the total volume of international trade as they did in the 1930s. Okay, if that's the case, then why do trade wars start? Let's take a listen to the economist Milton Friedman. The political reason is fairly straightforward. The political reason is that the interests that press for protection are concentrated. The people who are harmed by protection are spread and diffused. So as we just heard, it's easier and much more likely for a group of workers to band together and vote in unison for trade protection than it is for every consumer within an economy to vote in favor of cheaper Barbie dolls, right? One's going to be much more likely than the other. And so that explains why trade wars can be politically attractive, even if they're extremely harmful economically. But 
what if these economists, very distinguished economists on both sides of the political aisle, both Milton Friedman and Paul Krugman, it's rare that you'll ever find those two agreeing on something, what if this economic consensus is missing something? What if it's missing the fact that the Chinese have been committing extremely egregious trade violations for many years and that something needs to be done? And what if they're missing that this trade war isn't really about trade, but it's about something else entirely? Stay tuned for the next episode while we unpack those questions. Thanks for tuning in. I think they're all insane. If you got value from this episode, please do me a quick favor. First, hit subscribe. And second, leave a five-star review if you're podcasting, or hit the like button and the notification bell if you're YouTubing. There, too easy. See you next time.